We ask you for uh, open mind and heart and things of the scriptures, God. We just ask you for spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you to know you, God, as you have revealed yourself. And the deep things of God, Holy Spirit, we ask you to reveal to us the cross, the deep things of God that you ordained from ages past, God, and that you would protect us from the ways of the evil one that lead us off that narrow path to eternal life, God. We just give ourselves to you and we say, apart from you and apart from your leadership, apart from the Holy Spirit and the Scriptures, God, we just tend towards that wide road. And so we just ask you, lead us not into temptation, God. Lead us by the Holy Spirit down paths of truth. We want to believe your word. We want to believe it's actually true, God. So we ask you for help, God. Quicken our hearts by the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so, uh, sacrificial errors. So now that we've worked through that, uh, you know, from the, the apostolic teaching that happened during that 40 days, we, we believe that Jesus himself interpreted to the apostles what it meant that he had died and how God reckoned his own death and that Jesus interpreted it primarily along Isaiah 53 for the apostles. And that's why you get the rehearsing of Isaiah 53 so much that it wasn't just a great idea that they all kind of came up with in Bible studies sitting around Jerusalem, but that God himself in Christ Jesus interpreted his own death according to the scriptures primarily Isaiah 53, but also the calendar and also the sacrificial system, which I believe are the three main things that, that uh, you know, which the Passover being part of the calendar and the sacrificial system being integrated into that also, but that you get basically, you know, Hebrews 8 through 10 being the heart of what was being said on the Emmaus Road and what's being said in that 40 days, the interpretation of his death once for all to bear sin before the glory to come and the bringing of salvation. And then you get an expounding on that for 40 days and it's different aspects of propitiation and justification and redemption unto the reconciliation of man between God and human beings in anticipation of the day of the Lord. And so we have peace with God. And we know that if God sent His Son on our behalf, surely we'll be saved from the wrath to come. And uh, so then we want to deal with errors, errors concerning, uh, errors concerning the sacrifice. Because the same errors that concern how you relate to the sacrificial system are the broad errors that we deal with in, in, uh, in throughout church history that they were dealing with in the early church and throughout church history that we're dealing with today. So the first error is presumption upon the sacrifice. <clears throat> that if we presume upon it, that we sin deliberately and assume the sacrifice will be offered in forgiveness, this is a fundamental error of which the sacrifice is annulled in, in, in the situation. If there's no repentance, then the sacrifice means nothing. 
And so Hebrews 10 is the clearest uh, description after the whole, you know, we've been reading through Hebrews 9 and 10. So on the heels of all that, you get the description of, so now that he's been offered as a sacrifice, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses, right? So you get a reference to deliberate sin in regards to the law of Moses. And what happens with deliberate sin in the law of Moses? They die without mercy. How much more if we do the same thing with the sacrifice of God and His Son? Right? This is his point. So he's making a direct analogy to the sacrificial system and the first coming. And then he corrects the error and the perversion of it, saying, look, the perversion of the sacrificial system in the Old Testament result in this. How much more the greater sacrifice if we pervert it and presume upon it? Right? How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God, who has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the Spirit of grace? Okay, so this is the fundamental error of the hyper-grace movement, is that it was all done for us at the first coming. It was all paid. It was all done. We we repented. We don't need to repent anymore. We're sealed. We're we receive it all we can do, and it's like, no, <laughs> no, 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 no. It, it's contingent to the end upon your repentance. It has nothing to do. It's not on the basis of your works. It's on the basis of your faith, which is a repentant faith. And if you give up repentance and you walk in pride, in whichever, you know, whether willful sin or legalism, the sacrifice doesn't apply to you. On that day, you see what I'm saying, and so what the the what the writer of Hebrews is trying to hammer at is is look, you got guys who really believe because they believe in they believe in Jesus, but they have a perversion and they really believe they're going to be saved. And he's saying, no, you're deliberately sinning, and there is no sacrifice for you. There wasn't in the Old Testament. There isn't in the New, right? So. The point of, look, why do we grind through so much, you know, of the sacrificial system and the scriptures? And it's like, if you don't have a base for this, you don't have a base for the understanding of grace in the New Testament as it's based on the sacrificial idea and ha is explained in these different ways of wrath and, and judgment and recompense. Then if you don't, if you don't relate to the blood correctly, you, the whole thing you destroy. And though you're under the delusion that you're right with God, on that day when things are revealed and exposed, it's not going to turn out well. And so, um, so 1 Corinthians 5, this is, uh, again is right after this is where we read earlier, where we say, what's it our job to judge those outside the church? It's not our responsibility, but we must judge those within the church. 
And if there's not repentance, we must expel and purge the evil within us, just like it was within the law. We don't stone them, but we put them out of the fellowship. And so he says, uh, this is the beginning before that, it's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the Gentiles. So the issue is, how do you tolerate it and administrate the grace of God in the midst of the community? And this isn't even tolerated amongst the pagans. He says, for a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant, you're proud, you boast in it. Like, that's an awesome thing. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who has done such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, my spirit is present, the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Right? Because we as mature believers, those in leadership in the church, it's assumed that if we're in leadership, we have some sort of seasoned nature to us in the scripture and the knowledge of God. And we know how it will, the things of life and how it will actually turn out in the end. So this is why Paul says, look, this guy is deliberately sinning. We ought not tolerate it, and we ought out of love to pronounce judgment because we know that God has pronounced judgment on him and that he will be destroyed at the day of the Lord. So we ought to, in love, put him out of the fellowship so that he will come to terms with his sins so that he'll be saved on the day of the Lord because we can't continue to tolerate him in our midst deliberately sinning because he's not receiving discipline, he's not listening, he's not repenting, and we want him to be saved, and we know he won't be saved. So this is how we deal with it. Uh, Romans 3. Now this is, the, this is the problem of justification by faith, that it will always have this perversion. There are always, because of the sin and depravity of man, human beings will always take the forgiveness of sins and the doctrine of justification by faith and they will always pervert it and presume upon it. It's always going to happen. So this is the perversion that's happening in the early church that Hebrews 10 and Paul and James is, is fighting against. Because Paul never says justification by faith alone. He never says that. Never. Not one time. The only time it's said is by James. And Paul and James are agreed on the same problem in the perversion. Right? Paul would never say justification by faith alone. That's why it's, he's always giving his response that I tell the Gentiles to repent and put their faith in God and produce fruit in keeping with repentance. The perversion, the, 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 the presuming upon the sacrifice does not produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Its actions don't go along with its deeds, right? So Paul and James are not at odds with each other. They're simply they're they're fighting the same perversion from a different from different angles and unfortunately luther used that phrase justification by faith alone as his like his catchphrase for all of his theology and so the perversion of of presuming upon the sacrifice ran rampant within you know has always run rampant within the lutheran tradition and 
you know, somehow Luther like hated the book of James and, you know, didn't consider it to be worthy in the scriptures. And it's like, no, no, they're both, they're both having problems with the, the same issue. So this is Romans three. This is what, this is what Paul is getting accused of. And this is what James is attacking, but Paul's attacking it too. But he's just holding to the issue of justification by faith, okay? And he's he's keeping that at the forefront, and this is the accusation that's coming at, at Paul. <clears throat> Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as, as a sinner? Why not say, as we are being slanderously reported as saying, and as some claim we say, let us do evil that good may result, their condemnation is deserved. Okay? Now, whether he's talking about those who are accusing him or those who are saying that phrase, let us do evil that good may result, I think, I, I don't, yeah, I don't, know for sure, but I think their condemnation is those that say, let us sin all the more because it glorifies God and the sacrifice covers it, right? Their condemnation is deserved. They have no sacrifice left, only an expectation of fire and fury if they would, if they don't believe it, but that's, that's what they have to come to terms with. So that's the first major perversion an error in in uh, the sacrifice and in the greater sacrifice of Christ Jesus. The second is like it; it derives from the same issue of pride. And and but the second is that you set aside the sacrifice, though you see it, you don't actually offer it. Okay, so this is what's happening at the temple with the Pharisee and the tax collector. Though it's though the Pharisee is offering the sacrifice, he's not actually casting his sins upon it, right? I'm glad I'm not like this guy, right? He's setting aside the grace of God, and he's not recognizing his own sin and confessing and keeping a working out his salvation with fear and trembling. So you you get the legalistic, the setting aside of the sacrifice. That's the other perversion of the sacrifice. And this is the one that Paul is mainly dealing with throughout his ministry because it's the circumcision group is such a central uh, 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 factor going on in the early church. So I don't know how much we need to, we don't have time to, but uh, are you guys familiar with the circumcision group, the circumcision party, who they are? Vaguely. The, the early church, there's not just the church and unbelieving Jews, right? There's not two parties going on. There's three parties going on. Well, there's four parties going on, but the three main ones are the church, believing Jew and Gentile, those who claim to be believers but are part of the circumcision group and have been severed from the head, though they believe they'll inherit salvation, and unbelieving Jews. And you have the unbelieving Jews in Jerusalem that are in the heart and center of things, and then you have the believing Jews that are trying to appease and keep peace in the situation and not have an Acts 8 breakout of persecution going on, right? So you get to Acts 21 and you have thousands of Jews who have believed in Jerusalem and are zealous for the law and you're trying to keep peace with 
between the Pharisaical party and those who are believers of the Pharisaical party. And so you get to Acts 15, and it's those believers who were of the Pharisaical party, they're of the, the Pharisees, that are termed the circumcision group or the circumcision party. And it's a broad delineation. It's a broad uh, a term that's used to describe those in the early church who are believers in Jesus but came from the party of the Pharisees, which Paul also came from, but he ended up coming at odds with them. And so it's not that everybody in the circumcision group is severed from the head, from Christ. Like in Colossians 4, he's, he, has, he mentions a couple people from the circumcision group that are laborers with him in the kingdom. But it seems like he says that they're the only ones. I don't know. But it's a characterization that the vast majority of them have lost touch with how to be saved on the day of wrath. So it's this circumcision party that claim to be believers that you have the clash with at the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15 that Paul is constantly coming up against throughout his epistles. And you get it in Romans, you get it in 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 the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 11, it's real clear that the super apostles that are coming along and abusing and setting themselves up, are they Hebrews? I am too. Are they Israelites? I am too. It's clear that they are, they, they are, are Jews that are coming from Jerusalem and that it has the same description. The way they relate is the same as the circumcision party and the other letters. And you get it. It's, it's, Almost, it's laid out clearly in Ephesians, the circumcision party, clearly in Philippians, fairly clearly in Colossians 2, that this is who he's dealing with. Thessalonians, it's pretty clearly laid out. They're name by name in the book of Titus. You get a reference to them in, in, in uh, 1 Timothy. So it's almost in all of Paul's books. The, guy, the guy's on the other side of what he's saying. He's not just kind of going on about things. There's, there's so-called pillars that are on the other side that he is clashing with and dealing with. It's not, it's not like this kind of big happy party in the early church where everybody's getting along. There's like massive contention going on and, and those who report themselves to be pillars and then Paul has to get up and rebuke him in front of everybody and then it's, you have argument in Jerusalem over things and you have rumors going on amongst the leadership in Jerusalem that you're trying to quell the fires and this and that, and you have delegations coming. Well, may, you know, apparently some guys went out without our authority and they disturbed your faith, you know, and it's like you got these guys coming and going and, and you're just trying to work out issues. And so, so uh, until you get the circumcision group as the other side of the argument, Galatians it's just kind of one long diatribe of theological whatever. But then you you put that there's real people on the other side. You know what I'm saying? And they're not just random people. They're, they're those who are in the center of everything. And Paul's on the peripheral. Okay? Paul's not in the center. Paul comes back to Jerusalem. And fellowships, and they say, you know, Acts 21, it's reported, it's rumored around here that you're teaching the Jews, you know, to forsake the law of Moses while you're out amongst the Gentiles, right? Like Paul is out on the periphery. 
And there's all this going on. So again, when then you read Galatians and it's like Paul's trying to establish a church in Galatia that's made up of Jew and Gentile and there's conflict and how do you fellowship around and how do you relate to the law and when Gentiles don't have the same standards that are being put up to them by the Council of Jerusalem and this and the other and how do you love one another and, and who's fulfilling the law and who's not and passing judgment on each other and and the spirit of the age and arrogance coming into the church and this and that. And it's like, then you read Galatians and it's just like liquid fire controversy. The whole book is just like, dude, you can't say that, you know? And, and if you, if you read it in the right light, it's like, you know, it's like somebody within the gospel coalition standing up and just, you know, hammering on John Piper in front of everybody. It's like, dude, you know, or somebody in the prayer movement getting up and hammering on Mike Bickle and, you know, and going on like this. Like, there's real people on the other side with real, like, status and real, like, controversy going on and back and forth. So the the controversy that's uh, going on is over the issue of how you interpret the sacrifice and how you relate to it and what's the faith that we do with it. So Galatians 2, before certain men came from James, Peter was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. The rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. You're talking about like, these are the two main guys, man. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of, before them all. Okay, so now you're talking about in front of the church in Antioch, a rebuke between two apostles going on. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Sorry. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified or acquitted. And so you, you have a basic setting up. Look. We're Jews, we're not Gentile sinners, we're cultivated by the law, and we know that we're not justified by it. We're justified by the mercy of God according to the sacrifice. We don't find our righteousness and salvation based upon how well we obey that thing. We know this, right? The the thing told us that we're sinners. That's why it was added, because of transgression. This is how you ought to be relating to the law. And so he says... But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners in Christ, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. So you get this echoed in Romans 5 and Romans 6, right? If, 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 if grace abounds, should we go on sinning? Certainly not, right? He says this twice, that exact same phrase. And what he's saying is, look, if, you know, because right before this, he, he says certain men came from the circumcision party and spied into our meetings. And so you got this dynamic from the circumcision group that they're sending people into the meetings and people are confessing their sin and repenting and, and praying to asking to be prayed for. And then the guys leave the meetings and go, look, 
This is what justification by faith results in. It results in not walking in holiness, right? And so then you get an accusation, a slanderous accusation that's coming at it. And Paul's saying, look, if, if it shows in my attempt to be justified and acquitted before God by having faith and sacrifice, not having righteousness in my own, then what's that prove? It just proves I'm a sinner and need to cry out for the mercy of God. That's what it proves. If I tear down what I built, it just means I'm a transgressor transgressor, and need the mercy of God and throws me back into the same issue of crying out for mercy. Okay? So the other thing that the circumcision group and its pattern of discipleship is much worse, much worse. Now let's work out the pattern and pull yourself up. We'll do this routine, do like this. And it's like, man, that thing just destroys human beings. It really does. And you have somebody who comes to you in vulnerability. They hate their sin already. It's going on. You don't grab them and set out a chart for them. You grab them and say, let's ask God for mercy. Let's cry out for the Holy Spirit. Let's ask for grace. And you start praying with them. Oh, God, have mercy on us. Holy Spirit, come. Strengthen our hearts. Lead us not into temptation. Right? And this is how you disciple human beings in a body of death with prone towards sin and all this, you press them into the sacrifice. You press them into the mercy of God. You understand? Because this is how you cast yourself into the hands of God. You don't separate yourself from the hands of God and pull yourself up and strengthen yourself according to the flesh. That's not how you walk before God. And so he says, for if through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God, Okay, so when you read commentaries on this passage, it's just as bewildering as you can imagine the different arguments for what it is and what it is not. If you just interpret it in a fairly straightforward manner that he's saying the same thing elsewhere, that he's saying the same thing in Romans 7. Through the law, it told me not to covet. And then I heard it, and all of a sudden covetousness rose up in me. Right? You don't walk according to the law. You listen to it and you cast yourself on God and you cry out for mercy. Who will deliver me from this thing? Christ Jesus will deliver me from this thing. The Holy Spirit will deliver me from this thing. Because there's no condemnation because he offered himself as a sacrifice. And that's how we walk in the Spirit. By casting our sin on the sacrifice. Walking according to the sacrifice. We don't walk according to the flesh like the legalists in the circumcision group. We don't walk and boast according to that. We boast according to God and what he's done, right? And so... Through the law, I died to that thing. And finding righteousness according to it, to find the basis, to find the hope for eternal life according to that thing, right? And so he says, he says, through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Okay, so what does being crucified with Christ mean? It gets laid out in the next verse. It's the idea of, I've been sacrificed with the animal. I've died with the animal. I am found in the sacrifice. That's his point, because it's made clear right after it. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. The life I live between now and the day of the Lord in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. That's how I am crucified with him. I live according to that, not according to the to to the, the works of the law. 
He says, I do not nullify the grace of God, or the NIV says, set aside the grace of God. For if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose, right? So you have to put, again, all this in context to a debate between two apostles in front of everybody and the contention that's being said, where Paul is saying, I'm saying this. Therefore, this is what you're saying, Peter. You're saying that you haven't died to the law. You're saying that you haven't been crucified with Christ. You're saying that you nullify the grace of God. The life you live in the body, you live by faith in your own human effort, Galatians 3, which is what he hits right after this. You started in the Spirit, but now you're continuing in human effort. That's the life you're living to attain eternal life. You have set aside the grace of God because to you, Christ died for nothing. To you... The Romans misunderstood. They killed him. God raised him from the dead. He ascended on high. He's going to return. And you're going to inherit the kingdom because you're awesome. That's what it means to you. And you you got to understand, this is being preached so much today in the church. It, it, it the, the whole new perspective and that whole thing trickling down and all of it. The bottom line is, what must I do to be saved? Just believe Jesus is the Messiah. That's all. The righteousness of God, that's not substitutional. That's not based on sacrifice. That's just the covenant faithfulness of God. That's something God possesses. It's not something he imparts. You just believe Jesus is the Messiah, you'll be saved. No, 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 no. There is an extra step involved. There's a mechanism involved in the believing, and it's called you cast yourself and your sin on the sacrifice, and God, before God, he reckons you in relation to that sacrifice. And if you're, if God doesn't reckon you with the sacrifice, you don't get saved. You don't, you bear your own sin. You're not justified. You're not acquitted on that day. You see what I'm saying? So this is the main contention. And if Galatians is like liquid fire, then Philippians is just hand to hand combat, man. I mean, like Galatians and Philippians just go right along together and they're just like intensely contentious. Ephesians and, and Colossians aren't nearly as, you know, contentious. They're just much more like revelatory and, you know, like filled with thanksgiving and praise. But like Galatians and Philippians, there's like a fight going on and, a, and it's just like, I'm, I'm trying to establish you and form Christ in you after guys who are zealous for your flesh to boast in you that they've made disciples of themselves of you. But I'm trying to form Christ in you and I've started a good work in you. And then these other guys come along and they've bewitched you and they've gotten you off the right track. They've severed you from the head. And so, but I want to establish a good work that it would go on to completion to the day of Christ Jesus. And then you get in Philippians, these guys preach Christ out of selfish ambition and envy and rivalry and everything going on inside. They have a mask for greed. They're peddlers of the word of God. And they got all these ambitions going inside that drive them to put confidence in the flesh. And then he picks up in, uh, in Philippians 3, okay? So this is, you just got to hold on. <laughs> because it's just so, we'll finish it for here, I promise. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Okay, so we know it's the circumcision party because he uses the same phraseology in Ephesians 2. 
those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the real circumcision. They call themselves the circumcision, but we're the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. We walk according to the Spirit. We don't walk according to the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Okay, so he's not talking about unbelievers. The dogs are not unbelievers here. The dogs are believers who are identifying themselves with the Pharisees and with the circumcision party. Okay, and he's like, look, I have more reason. I was a more radical Pharisee than you were. I was a more zealot. I was more, I was more combed and groomed in this path to have confidence on the day of the Lord than you do. Okay, so he says, circumcised on the eighth day. Now the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, persecuted the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless or perfect. Okay, so you got to circle that word, blameless, perfect. Okay, because it's going to come back again and you're going to get the heart of what Paul is driving for in perfection. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So again, you get the language that he picks up elsewhere that they don't know Christ. They've been severed from the head, right? Galatians 5. They've been cut off, Colossians 2. <laughs> so they don't know Christ. For this sake, for his sake, I have lost... Wait a minute. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them rubbish or dung. So what are the all things? All the things that the circumcision group are boasting in, that he used to boast in. Boast in for what? For salvation, for righteousness and salvation on the day of the Lord. He says, I count them rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. So again, we have to, we have to have the two age delineated by the day of the Lord to put all the language in. What does found in him mean? Found in him, we will see, is attaining to the resurrection. Found in him is when he descends from heaven, from where our citizenship, and he, Makes his, he makes our bodies like his glorious bodies and transform them. Being found in him is on that day, right? Everything is pressing towards that day, and all of the language and all of the issues involved are in relation to the day of the Lord. So his point is, look, I don't want to have confidence in the flesh. I don't want to be found in myself on that day. I want to be found in him, in Christ crucified on that day, because I'm convinced, not because some man made it up, but because Christ Jesus himself told the apostles that this is how it's going to be, then he appeared to me and he told me, this is how it's going to be on the day of Christ Jesus. And this is how you're going to be found righteous and blameless in his sight. And this is how you're going to inherit eternal life. And it, it, it goes against everything that feels right in the flesh. It, that doesn't seem like the way it should be. Well, it just doesn't. That's I just don't. I don't identify with that, man. Well, of course you don't identify with that. You have a body of death, you're depraved. That's why you don't identify with it. That's why there's not a, 
you know, that's why it doesn't feel good and there's not a burning to it. But when the Holy Spirit grabs hold of you, the Lord confirms it to you. You cast that stuff down and you live according to the truth and you walk according to the Spirit and what the Spirit says and confirms the Scriptures to you that this is actually how it is and this is how we will be reckoned as righteous as a gift of God on that day. You see what I'm saying? So he says... uh, So I count all things as rubbish to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in the death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. So all he's saying is, I want to be with Christ. I want to be with him in his crucifixion. I want to walk according to the cross that I might be found with him in the resurrection. I want to die with him in his death that I might live with him in his resurrection. Right? Romans 6. So he says, uh, he says, uh, not that I've already obtained to this or am already perfect. Okay? He's not talking about, not that I've already obtained to the resurrection. Obviously, you haven't attained to the resurrection, brother. (laughs) <laughs> we're all still here this is all going on that's why we, what is he obtaining to he's obtaining to the faith of being found in him not having a righteousness of his own he's obtaining to casting the other that he used to put confidence in to the ground as dung he's obtaining to faith in Christ crucified that's what he's obtaining to it becomes clear as he presses on here he says not that I've already obtained to this or I'm already perfect or mature but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. You understand? Why is Paul getting knocked off his horse on the way to Damascus? It's not because he's not zealous for the law. It's not because he's not zealous to gain eternal life. He's getting knocked off because he has zeal without knowledge and he doesn't know the divine prescription and arrangement for salvation. So this is what he's saying. I've been taken hold of Christ Jesus and his death for me, and I want to take hold of that. You see what I'm saying? And he says, um, he says, uh, he's made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, what lies behind is all the stuff he used to put confidence in. Now, straining and pressing ahead, what is he pressing ahead towards? Faith in the cross and being found in the sacrifice on that day. So this is the one thing he's doing. He was doing one thing before, and that was boasting in the flesh. Now he's doing one other thing, and that's boasting in the cross under the day of Christ Jesus, that he might attain the resurrection. You see what the striving and the race is towards and what it's unto? And so it says, uh, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward or the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And what's the prize? The prize is the resurrection of the dead. And this is what I'm pressing on towards the resurrection of the dead. Because the conflict is not over what the prize is. We all want eternal life. The conflict is over the knowledge of God and how God has ordained it and what He has chosen as the means. You see what I'm saying? 
You just get that fog of unbelief. No, not really. I don't. Come on. You know. Believe in that, you won't really press for holiness and righteousness. I don't know. No. No, this is how he's ordained it. And this is the way he's, he's framed it within. And holiness will take care of itself by the prodding of the Holy Spirit. And if people will continue to repent and not harden their heart to the Holy Spirit and not go on deliberately sinning, the Holy Spirit will lead them in the paths of righteousness according to mercy. And he says, uh, he says, <clears throat> he says, let those of us who are mature think this way. Okay, so this is clearly explained in Romans 14, that the circumcision party is the immature ones, that they, they count righteousness according to observing days, according to observing Sabbath, according to observing kosholon. This is what matters to them on the judgment seat. This is what matters to enter the kingdom of God. And he says, us who are mature, we know that every day is alike because God created them. We know that all food is alike, sanctified by prayer and the Holy Spirit. And that these are not the things that matter on the day of judgment. But what matters is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So he says, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. So that's how he concludes Romans 14. Only let us hold true to that which we've obtained, attained, which is exactly how he ends Romans 14. Romans Join in an imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross. Their end is destruction. Their God is their appetites. Which is the end, which, you know, Kaloi, I'm not, why you either interpret it appetite or belly. And clearly in Romans 16, everybody interprets it because he he hammers on the circumcision group at the end of Romans 16 and you interpret the same thing as appetite there but it always gets interpreted as stomach or belly here and that's it's 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 their appetites it's the inward drive that makes them a dog that makes them put confidence in the flesh and not put confidence in the Christ uh, in the cross their glory is their shame with minds set on earthly things which is the same thing he concludes in Colossians 2 where he's hammering on. Therefore, don't let anybody judge you about a new moon Sabbath or festival, which is a threefold summation of the calendar system used five times in the Old Testament. They go on, they puff themselves up about visions of angels and they give you a different gospel. But it doesn't actually work, it doesn't actually constrain uh, indulgence and it's a false humility therefore Colossians 3 set your mind on things above because they have their minds set on things of the flesh but we have our minds set on things above where Christ crucified has been exalted and approved of by God and when he appears we will be like him if we put if we nail that thing to the cross all right, so uh, just to explain this, and then we'll, we'll, we'll end with the diagram, just to give you context that in the early church you just had, like on the front page, you, you had those who are going to be saved by substitute righteousness, by faith in the cross, a righteousness not their own, that is counted to them or imputed or reckoned, same word. It's reckoned to them by God on that day. And then you have those who will stand in their own righteousness and they will bear their own sin. And that happens by two errors. By presuming upon the sacrifice and deliberate sin or by setting aside the sacrifice 
and, and rejecting the sacrifice and walking according to your own righteousness, you see? So these are the two we want to avoid and we want to stay on that narrow path to eternal life that we gain and we're found in the cross by faith in the cross to inherit eternal life. As time goes on and you add, of course, all this is just the Jewish hope of new, you know, new earth, resurrection, body, and these things. You go on and you add the Hellenistic hope and heavenly destiny and such. You have the same conflict that's going on with Luther, right? And you have Luther, the most zealous of Augustinian monks, for 15 years, he said in his, in his journal, of anybody, of any monk who would be saved, it was me. Of any monk who had attained righteousness before God, it was surely I. Because the whole monastic system is basically just a Gentilized law and the rules of the various monastic traditions. You read the rules and it's basically the Old Testament kind of perverted around with a new Gentile twist and put out... Right, I mean, it's just Gentile Pharisees, and all the rules basically end with, if you don't keep every aspect of this rule, you you will not attain eternal life. That's how they all kind of end. And so it's just the same nature of human being taken into a different context, and it's surely, it's not everybody within Catholicism was self-righteous, but surely it's the same nature within human beings that produced the same effects in the, in the two different contexts of 1st century and 16th century Europe, right? And so Luther wasn't wrong in what he was hammering against. He just had it unto a heavenly destiny, and, you know, you can't quite make a direct uh, uh, correlation between monasticism and, and the circumcision group, though I think they're kind of analogous. So the point is, is that the... The Reformed tradition and the main tenets of the Reformed faith and the, and the Protestant faith, we want to hold to, okay? But we just want to hold to it and lie the day of the Lord instead of universalized judgment upon death unto a heavenly destiny. We want to hold to it in light of the day of the Lord and the day of Christ Jesus. Lord, we just ask you that you would seal these things in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. You would strengthen our hearts in grace, God. That you strengthen our hearts in the truth of the free gift of eternal life. God, if we will continue with one thing before us and we'll strive in that race, God, to keep the cross before us unto the day of Christ Jesus. God, we want to live according to your pattern. We want to put that blood over the door of our life, God. And we want to stay in the house unto the day of judgment, God. And we need the Holy Spirit for zeal on it, God. We need the Holy Spirit to overcome our weakness and our brokenness and all of the issues going on inside, God. So we ask you for the Holy Spirit that you would come, that you would help us, that you would strengthen us in that path to eternal life in the name of Jesus.